Good morning, everyone. <clears throat> Excuse me. If you could please make your way to your seats. And as you do, if you would join me in prayer, asking the Lord's blessing on the preaching and the hearing of his word. <clears throat> Father in heaven, we thank you that you are a God who is transcendent, far above us in holiness, distinct as being the creator, the supreme and sovereign one over all. And yet you are a God who comes near. Come near to us when we pray. You come near to us when we gather together as your people to sing your praises and to hear the proclamation of your word. Would you attend it now with blessing, God? Would you be merciful? And in your wisdom and your might, bless us by it. And we ask all these things in the name of Jesus and for your glory. Amen. Old-fashioned, outdated, mistaken and confused, simple-minded, gullible, uneducated, uninformed, naive. This is what many people have called many Christians over the years. And it's not unheard of for people even today to speak this way about Christians. But increasingly, people are adding to these names or maybe substituting for names like judgmental and arrogant, unloving and mean-spirited, vile and toxic and destructive and oppressive, hateful and evil. People who have the values of, they have the beliefs of, they have the love for Christ, and they live in accordance with that, can increasingly be called these names. And do you know the difference? Did you see the, the shift? <clears throat> it, it went from us being merely ignorant to now being immoral. They think us not so much only wrong-headed, but downright wicked for following Jesus. Integrity, as David uses it in Psalm 26, integrity meaning that God-centered, faith-filled, sincere righteousness before God and commitment to God and love for God is not always appreciated. And sometimes it's not even recognized as good and it can be even hated and called wicked. And therefore, you may be tempted from time to time to compromise, to compromise in following Jesus, compromise in your submission to the Lord and commitment to him. You may be tempted to compromise your integrity or you may be tempted to doubt God's faithfulness because you've been following him and you've been holding up your end, but <clears throat> why is it that the world is hating you? Seems like he's not keeping his end of the bargain. When instead what we should be doing is pursuing integrity all the more and trusting God all the more to vindicate us. That when they call us these things that God would come to our defense, we need to trust him for it. To be vindicated, that God would give us vindication. What does that mean? Well, 
maybe a, a silly analogy, but if you think of watching a football game and you have the, the visiting team coming to their rival and they score a touchdown, the ref says touchdown, and immediately all the fans start booing and throwing things onto the field. The coach of the home team throws his clipboard down and starts yelling and saying, I'm challenging that. And so they go to the official review and they watch the replay and it's up on the screen for all the people to see on TV, for everybody to see in the stadium, including all the fans and the coach. And as soon as they see it, sure enough, he was in bounds and it was a touchdown. At that moment, the player and the ref have been vindicated. They have been set in the clear, their name exonerated. They've been pardoned and proved to be right. Maybe more seriously, think of three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, refused to bow down to the statue of Nebuchadnezzar, <clears throat> and they were called traitors. They were treasonous. They were rebels. And so they were thrown into a fiery furnace that was heated up way hotter than usual. But they were seen walking around in the fire. They walked out of the fire unharmed, unsinged, and their clothes didn't even smell of smoke. At that moment, their faith in God and their obedience to him was vindicated. They were proved to be right. David here in Psalm 26 is being slandered, maligned, and hated, and he's asking God for vindication. Vindicate me, O Lord, he says. He's either being intentionally lied about because they hate him, or more likely, he is being maligned and persecuted for his obedience to God. Either way, it was putting his own life in danger, and he's praying for God to come to his defense, to vindicate him. And while David's issue, what he's being accused of, and who his accusers were, we don't know. And it was a long time ago, specific to David, and yet, and yet, we can resonate. We can apply this to ourselves. Because those discipled by the worldly culture around us, when they hear us speak of the Bible being God's holy, authoritative word of truth, the only rule for faith and practice in this life and for the life to come, and that it speaks of Jesus being the only way to have meaning in this life, the, Jesus being the only way to have forgiveness from your sins, Jesus being the only way to have escape from hell and entrance into heaven, Jesus being the only way to be reconciled to and to have a communion with God. When they hear that, they not only think that we are gullible and mistaken, they charge us as being arrogant and divisive. When they see us stand up against the immorality of drunkenness because we treat alcohol differently than they do, or we stand up against the immorality of immodesty, because we dress differently than they would. When we stand up against the entertainment obsession and spend our time differently than they would, they not only feel sorry for us because we're not living life to the fullest, they might say, but, but then they falsely accuse us of being judgmental and hateful. They know that we stand up for God's definition of marriage and God's standard for sexuality and God's value of life. And they not only think we're backwards, they slander us as those who are oppressive and those who are dangerous. Dangerous to their way of life. Dangerous to the peace and happiness that they want to have as they live in rebellion against God. And when they slander us and accuse us and charge us of all these wrongdoing, 
we need vindication. And yet, sadly, yet prophetically, it isn't just those outside of churches that would slander us in this way. There are many in churches who are a part of this Satan-driven worldly culture, and David is no stranger to that. In Psalm 26, verse 4, we read, I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with hypocrites. That is, there are those who are lying about him, and there are those that are lying about themselves, saying that they're a part of the people of God when they're really not. They belong in the covenant, but then they accuse those who live according to the covenant with wrongdoing. And this is all the harder, isn't it? I mean, if, if the big bad world can come against all of us as we lock arms, then we can stand against the evil forces. But what happens when it's in here as well? Those who claim the name of Christ and they charge those who are being obedient to his word with unrighteousness, with being unloving, unfaithful. It's all the more challenging. And we add to this that Satan himself is the tempter. He and his demons, the evil spirits that would tempt us to join in the sin of others by telling us, well, that's not really sin. Or it's not that big of a deal. Or really the only sin is calling that sin. It's sinful when you don't tolerate and condone that. It's sinful when you don't appreciate and protect and promote that as a good thing. It's sinful when you don't celebrate and join in with that. I'm convinced that Satan doesn't really want to do away with the concept of sin. He just wants to get to define what sin is. He's okay if we say things are wrong and off limits as long as he gets to determine what that is. Where he turns good on its head and says that good is evil and evil is good. And he would tempt us to follow suit. And therefore you may be tempted often to compromise your integrity. Your God-centered, faith-filled, sincere righteousness before God and commitment to God and love for God. You may want to loosen your grip on that so as to get the approval of the world that Satan is driving. You may be tempted to doubt God's faithfulness that he will indeed come to your defense and rescue, that he will vindicate you. But we should be pursuing integrity all the more. We should be trusting him all the more, and we should be crying out in faith for God to vindicate us, as David does in Psalm 26, verse 1, vindicate me, O Lord. Verse 2, prove me, O Lord. Try me and test my heart, God, that nobody else can be my judge but you. And you know my heart. So let it be clear, not just to me and my enemies, my family and friends and all the world, that I am in the right because I am following you. Verse 11, he says, redeem me and be gracious to me. God, I need you to rescue me from their lies that are threatening my very life. What's interesting and somewhat surprising to me, though, is how David comes at this. Why he prays that he should be vindicated. He says, vindicate me, O Lord, in verse 1, for or because I have walked in my integrity. And I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. He says that he washes his hands in in innocence. He said he walks in his integrity. 
You go down in verses 4 through 8 and you find a kind of a clarification, explanation with greater proof for his integrity before God. And he starts off with a negative, what he does not do and what he hates. I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evildoers and I will not sit with the wicked. And I love what one commentator says here that if this sounds unloving to us or arrogant, we don't get it. This is not from David about social preference where he's saying, I won't sit with those people because I'm above them. That's not what it is. This isn't about his social preference. It's about his spiritual alignment, about his commitment to God. These are those who would live in rebellion against God, who would reject him. And he says, I won't walk that way. I won't go that way. When they are committing sins, I won't join in. I hate their rebellion. But in verse 8, the positive, what I love is the habitation of your house, O Lord. In the place where your glory dwells. And what does he do there in verse 6 and 7? I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar, O Lord. And I proclaim thanksgiving aloud to all who will hear and tell of your wondrous deeds to all who will listen. He gathers with the people of God in the tabernacle of God to praise his name and to encourage others to do the same. And then in verses 9 and 10 we read, Do not sweep my soul away with sinners. Think of Noah and the flood when it came. Do not sweep my soul away with those sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men and whose hands are evil devices and whose right hands are full of bribes. This is actually the most shocking to me. Because you notice the implication here. Do not sweep my soul away with sinners. That must mean that he does not count himself as one of those sinners. Now, if you have a good, hearty doctrine of sin a good theological understanding of sin, then this may cause you to stumble a bit. You're saying, is David here saying that he's not a sinner? That he's not one of those people? We know that's not the case. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So how do we, how do we to understand this? Well, we could try to solve this problem by saying... Ultimately, all the Psalms, Jesus said, all the Bible in Luke 24, including the Psalms, are actually about him. So maybe here what we could read is, I have walked in my integrity. That's just talking about the Christ. Jesus has perfect, sinless integrity here. And he trusted in the Lord without wavering. That would be theologically true and wonderful. I just think it would be an irresponsible reading of the text. That's not really what David is saying, not primarily. It ultimately is about Jesus. And we'll talk about that later. But really, primarily... His intention is to say that he has walked as one of the people of God in his integrity. So, okay, well, then maybe we can solve the problem here by saying that by faith, by faith in the Lord, we are counted righteous. By faith in the Lord Jesus, because he is perfect, we are united with him, and we too are counted as sinless, righteous before God. After all, he says, I've trusted in the Lord without wavering. So that's his integrity, right? Again, theologically true and beautiful, it's just not what he's saying in the text. He's not speaking of his positional righteousness, his stance before God by his faith in him or the Messiah to come, but he's talking about his own practical righteousness in life. So, is he saying that he's sinless? Surely not, because later and earlier, David has said and will say that, he, that none is righteous, that no one is sinless before God. David knows that other people knew, and we know that he committed adultery and murder. He had pride and rebellion. He's not claiming to be sinless. And yet still, 
There is a kind of righteousness. There is a integrity that we can and should have and pursue. Indeed, if you are a Christian, there is an integrity that you do have, practically speaking. Because if you do not have it, it is proof that you are not a follower of Christ. That's what he's speaking of. He's saying there is a specific issue here that they're accusing me of that I'm not guilty of. And yet even more so in general, I am one of those who walks in my integrity before the Lord. I have a God-centered, a faith-filled, sincere righteousness before God and obedience to Him and commitment to Him and love for Him. I worship Yahweh and Him alone. I am part of the covenant people of God. He's speaking of his, his spirit's allegiance to the Lord and Him alone. He has a humble confidence, a faith in God alone, and that he worships the God, the one true God, and no other. He's saying he's part of the covenant people of God. You too should live your life in such a way that it is this kind of integrity. And notice, this integrity is not just a general. The word integrity just means wholeness. That you are always who you are in front of your friends, your family, your enemies, your co-workers, strangers. You're in private and public. You're always the same. You're consistently authentic, right? But he's not just claiming this kind of general idea of authenticity as though being authentically, consistently yourself is the highest or only virtue. He's speaking here of a God-centered and a faith-filled kind of consistency. An integrity, a kind of authenticity of life where his obedience is to the Lord, his commitment is to the Lord, and his faith and love are to the Lord. And so you too should live your life in such a way that when others revile your beliefs, and when they revile your attitudes, your words, your actions, they're actually reviling God. Because you're doing what you do, you're living your life the way you are just because you are committed to Him, you're trusting Him, and you're loving Him. That's how it should be. That's how it should be. And yet, sadly, sometimes the accusations are not far off base, are they? There are many so-called Christians, and there are many actual Christians who are justly accused of sin. We just, we must resolve that this not be us. We must resolve that when others accuse us of terrible, wicked things, let it be slander. Let it be a lie. May it never be true. Let their reviling of us be a reviling of God because we're following Him. And yet we must also humbly acknowledge that we are sinners, that we do sin, that we are not perfect. Without, listen, acknowledging all of this without hiding behind the Christian aren't perfect, just forgiven kind of slogan. Because that's messed up. That's messed up. Because Christians aren't perfect, but they are repentant. Christians aren't perfect, but they pursue righteousness. Christians aren't perfect, they are forgiven. And yet they want to grow, become more like Jesus every day. Christians aren't sinless. But they have a serious and sincere devotion and commitment, a Godward commitment to sin less and less. This is about our Godward direction, not about our sinless perfection, if you will. And so we must pursue integrity. This God-centered, faith-filled righteousness and commitment and love for God. We must pursue this kind of 
righteousness. And we must crucify our sinful flesh. We must flee temptation and resist the devil at every turn. Satan is the tempter who would get us to sin, and yet he's also the accuser who would condemn us. He will seek to heap condemnation upon condemnation upon condemnation upon the people of God until they doubt that they are his at all. You see what he does, and you know this. He will seek to tempt you to sin by claiming that's not really sin. That's not that big of a deal. You can go that way. Loosen your grip. Don't be so fierce. Don't be so legalistic, he'll claim. You don't have to be so radical, so extreme. And when you compromise a little and you give in and you do sin, then he smacks you upside the head and says, how unworthy are you? He condemns and condemns and condemns. And he says, you're not only unlovely, you are unlovable. God will never have you. You're not his. Beloved, how great indeed is the need for us to distinguish between worldly guilt and godly grief. To have in our hearts and in our minds the distinction between condemnation of the devil and the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Because there are some similarities. From both you will feel guilty because you are. From both you will feel bad because sin is bad. From both you will feel ashamed because sin is shameful. But what you do in response makes all the difference in the world. And Paul in 2 Corinthians 7 gives us a kind of picture of this where he points out that those who are responding as if to worldly guilt and the condemnation of the devil, they look inward and they wallow in self-pity and in the condemnation that the devil heaps upon them. And then, or if, or else they will look outward and try to manufacture their, their acceptance before God by doing all the things they ought to do to be accepted and acceptable before the Lord. I can make up for it. I can either feel bad enough, then I can start feeling good enough, or I can do enough good to outdo my bad. That is worldly guilt and satanic condemnation-driven kind of response. But godly grief, responding to the Holy Spirit's conviction is when you turn upward to God. You turn to Him, and you, you, you stop turning away from Him and rebelling against Him, and you turn toward Him, and you run to Jesus. And you say, this is just another very, very clear reminder that I cannot save myself, that my only hope is the blood of Jesus, who He is and what He has done. Jesus, You alone are my Savior, my righteousness, my one defense. You go to him, and in, you, in doing so, you repent, you turn to God in your life with faith in Jesus, and then you pursue greater integrity with more God-centeredness, with more faith being filled in your heart, in your mind, you live this way and so prove that you do belong to him. And in doing so, you strengthen your faith that you indeed are one of God's people. You are one of his righteous ones. There is a distinction between you and the sinners who reject God. And you have faith that God will vindicate you as one of His. If you pursue 
in response to this Holy Spirit conviction and this godly grief, then you will respond as David does here in Psalm 26, verses 11 and 12, the first and the last part where he says, but as for me, I shall walk in my integrity. That's his response to their slander. His response to their persecution is in the great assembly at the end of verse 12, I will bless the Lord. This is his resolve, his commitment. It's different from earlier. Verse 1, he says, I have walked in my integrity. That's been the course of my life, my direction. But now he's saying, it will continue to be so. It's his resolute commitment to walk in his integrity before the Lord. Before, in verses 6 and 7, he says, he goes around the altar of God, proclaiming his thanksgiving aloud and telling all of his wondrous deeds. But in verse 12, he says, in the great assembly, I will bless the Lord. He is firmly resolute, saying, no matter what, this is how I will live. No matter the controversy, no matter the struggle, the obstacles, even if all would slander me and hate me and persecute me, I will walk in my integrity and I will bless the Lord. It is having the mindset and the attitude that one writer, as one writer put it, if God approves, let men condemn. If God approves, then let the whole world condemn. That writer was Greg Morse, and he wrote about Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great prince of preachers, as he is called, from 19th century England. And he is one of the most beloved pastors um, of the last several hundred years for many, many millions of people. And he was well-loved in his day, and yet... Charles Spurgeon was also one of the most hated men in London. And his sweet wife, Susanna Spurgeon, framed Matthew 5, 11 and 12 and hung it up in their bedroom so that every morning he would wake up and he would read the words of the Lord Jesus, wherein he said, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Morse said that Spurgeon needed this because he was slandered in the newspapers, ridiculed by his opponents, and censored by many evangelicals, those who should have been his allies and his friends and his supporters. Spurgeon says of himself that scarce a day rolls over my head in which the most villainous abuse, the most fearful slander is not uttered against me, both privately and by the public press. Every engine is employed to put me down. Every lie that man can invent is hurled at me. And how did he respond? Spurgeon said, friends chide us and foes abhor us when we are very jealous for the Lord God of Israel. But what do these things matter if the master approves? If the father smiles on you, if the spirit is satisfied and if the son delights in you, what does it matter if nobody else approves? His judgment is the only one that matters. If God approves, let the world condemn responding as David does in verses 11 and 12 but as for me even when the whole world will condemn me I shall walk in my integrity and in the great assembly I will bless the Lord Spurgeon says that it is yours and it is mine to do the right though the heavens fall it is your duty it is your responsibility it is our calling to do what god says is right though the earth gives way the mountains crumble and fall into the sea and the heavens fall 
We are to follow the command of Christ, whatever the consequence may be. And he said, is that strong meat to you? Then be strong men and feed thereon. Is it hard to swallow? That you would bear your cross daily, deny yourself and follow the Lord Jesus? Is it hard to swallow that you will be hated by all men on account of him? Is it hard to swallow that through many tribulations you will enter the kingdom of heaven? If it's hard to swallow, then get chewing, because that's what he's called us to. He's called us to this, but not without hope, not without encouragement. I love verse 12, part A. He says, my foot stands on level ground. Enemies are lying about me and people are believing it and it's threatening my lifestyle, my very life. But my foot stands on level ground. I am safe and stable and secure. There is controversy. There is temptation. There is struggle. But I stand on level ground. The reason for his resolved, resolute, committed response to walk in his integrity and to bless the Lord, to live in this God-centered, faith-filled, sincere righteousness and commitment and love to God is because, he says, I know that my foot stands on level ground. I will have my prayer answered and I will be vindicated. It is secure. Secured by what? By the very character of God himself. God is holy and good and he will not suffer long for his people to be maligned. This vindication is secured by the promise of God. He will be faithful. He will keep his word. He will never leave us nor forsake us, and he will come to our defense. This vindication is secured by the sovereignty of God. It's not just that he desires it and that he's promised it. He is able to vindicate his people because he is the supreme one, having all authority in all power, and none can stay his hand or thwart his plan or say to him, you're not allowed to do that. He is the sovereign one. He will vindicate his people. I know, I know you may feel at times you need more security, but you are never safer than when you are in the hands of God. You are never more secure than when you are standing with God in your integrity. You are never more stable than when you are on the rock of Jesus Christ. And I know that you say that that's true and I believe it, but sometimes it's so hard because it feels so compelling to want the approval and the love and the appreciation and the admiration of others. And so you are tempted to loosen your grip and to compromise, to give in just a little. But you mustn't. You must not. Do you notice what David does here, or rather what he doesn't do? He does not seek vindication from those who are slandering him. He doesn't go to them and try to reason with them. No, 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 I, it's, not, it's not like you think. No, we, we can find common ground. I, like, I, I, I'm not, I didn't mean that. He doesn't go and seek vindication by compromising or, or by giving in or by ceding ground or by changing sides, or apologizing for his God-centered integrity. It's not even a question in his mind, and it must not be for us either. We must stand firm on the level ground the Lord has given us and say with all resolve, I will walk in my integrity, and I will bless the Lord no matter 
What? Because I trust him that my feet are now and evermore will be on the level ground of stability, security, and safety because of God. He has, he can, he does, he will vindicate many of his people in various ways in this life, in part. But it is an absolute, guaranteed, fixed certainty that he will vindicate every one of his people at the last day. Psalm 135, verse 14. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. Isn't that beautiful? The Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. He's not uncaring about how much the world hates you and how much it stings. Or as he says in Isaiah 54, 17, no weapon that is fashioned against you shall, shall succeed and you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. And don't miss, the, don't miss this. They will fashion weapons against you. They just won't succeed. They will rise against you and they will, they will malign you and they will slander you and persecute you in judgment. But you shall be able to refute everyone because this is the heritage. This is the inheritance that Jesus has won for us. That God has promised to the servants of the Lord their vindication from him. Though we may be slandered and hated and persecuted, God will surely vindicate his people. All who trust in him, all who follow him, will not be put to shame. And so what do we do in response? Pursue integrity. Pursue this God-centered, faith-filled, sincere righteousness before God and commitment to God and love for him. Say that you will walk in your integrity and ask others to hold you accountable in this body to do so. Pursue it. Live your life in such a way that when others revile your life, they're actually reviling God. So that also when God is vindicated, it will be your vindication too. Number two, not only pursue integrity, but expect to be maligned. Expect to be hated, to be slandered and persecuted. You need to stop thinking that being a Christian is anything less than revolutionary. It is. Just showing up and living your life according to God's word is like flipping over tables in someone's living room. It's upheaval to people's lifestyle. And as always, the darkness hates the light. You will be slandered. You will be maligned. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. It's not strange. It's normal for the people of God. So pursue integrity. Expect to be maligned. And number three, trust the Lord to vindicate you. Trust him. Stand firm with your heart full of courage, knowing that your foot is on level ground. It might seem like, oh, it's so smooth and wide and calm out there. It's so, it's so stable and secure out there where the world approves of you. But it is jagged and uneven and you will fall. The only level, safe, stable ground is with the Lord in your integrity. Trusting Him. Trusting that in the end, Sooner or later, and part and one day in full, he will vindicate you. That is secured by the character of God, the promise of God, the sovereignty of God, and Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He has secured it. 
Because surely, surely Jesus knows what it is to walk in integrity more than David or us. Surely Jesus knows what it is to be slandered and hated and persecuted by his, for his commitment to the Lord greater than we or David ever understood. And surely Jesus knows what it is to be vindicated by the Lord upon his resurrection from the dead and where he is now ascended on high and is seated at the right hand of God the Father. And yet, his vindication is not yet full either, is it? It is not yet so that every knee is bowing before the Lord Jesus Christ. Not every tongue confesses that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father, but they will. Either in love or in humiliation, in their condemnation, they will. And by Jesus' integrity and his persecution and his vindication, we have the guarantee of ours. Your vindication, both here and now in part, and in full one day, and every part, and all the fullness of your everlasting reward, listen to me, it only comes by grace, through faith, in Christ alone. David speaks this way, where he says in verse 11, I shall walk in my integrity, redeem me, and be gracious to me. You say, I, I thought his reasoning for being vindicated was, was, was that he was walking in innocence and, and in, in integrity before the Lord, indeed. But he knows that it was not perfect. And he did not deserve and he could not earn God's vindication, God's blessings. It came by grace. And so he asks for it by grace. By grace, and he trusts in God for it. Verse 1, it's not only by grace, but through faith. I have walked in my integrity and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. And I love verse 3. For your steadfast love is before my eyes. That is my constant vision. That God, not them, not those to my side, not what I think of me, but what you, your steadfast love, your covenant mercy, your faithful kindness to me. That's what is constantly in view. And therefore, I walk in your faithfulness. I walk in my integrity, but in your faithfulness. That is, I walk with faith, trusting in you to be faithful. You to keep your promises. I am living by faith. That's why I do what I do and live how I live. This is the faith-filled integrity. And for us, because the Lord Jesus has come, this grace comes through him. And our faith is in him. After all, his integrity and his sinless perfection his hatred and persecution unto death on a cross and his vindication and his resurrection from the dead is for us. It's for us. So that that's our hope, that one day we will be vindicated when he comes again and he's vindicated in full. So will all those who hope in him. But oh, how dreadfully foolish, how terribly sad it was for those who mocked Noah, those who ridiculed him for his faith in Yahweh, those who maligned him and persecuted him and tried to stop him by calling him foolish as he built the ark on dry land. How terribly sad it was for them when the Lord on that day shut the door of the ark and the rains came and the floods rose. That day Noah was vindicated, but they were condemned. That's the only two possibilities. 
When the Lord comes, you will either be vindicated by your faith in him or you will be condemned. You will be swept away with sinners. Don't let that be you. It's only by grace, through faith, in Christ alone that you have this level of ground, both now and forevermore. So turn to him. Turn to him in faith. When others come up to partake of communion this morning, you stay where you're at and bow your heads and pray and ask God to grant you faith. Ask God to open your eyes to see your need for and the sufficiency of the Lord Jesus. And then come and talk to me afterwards or put it on a connection card. You want another pastor to meet with you to talk to you more about Jesus. Connect with a Christian friend around you maybe. You can email us at prcpastors at pineyridgechurch.org and it would be our absolute delight to tell you more about this good news about Jesus and the hope we have in him. Now this morning, if you are trusting in Jesus and your life is, has been proven to be so, that you belong to him, your faith is proven to be genuine because of your, not your sinless perfection, but your serious and sincere Godward direction of your life of God-centeredness and repentance for sin and love for God. And you've had that faith affirmed by other Christians in baptism in a local church. And in just a moment, you can exit to your left and come up to the front to one of these tables. Grab the communion elements. When the gluten-free is to the far left. And you can go back to your seat to the right and take it by yourself or with your family or friends. Take it with faith in what it represents. This bread and its juice represents the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ given in the place of sinners that they may become saints, that they may be forgiven, that they may be changed, that they may be vindicated by their hope in him and ask the Lord as you partake of it to strengthen your resolve because he strengthens your hope in him and him alone. For those who should come, whenever you're ready, please do so.